Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Past, Present, Future. Today is the first episode in our new series about the ideas behind American elections. I'm going to be talking to the historian Gary Gerstel about eight historic American presidential elections. We're going to be discussing what they were arguing about and why it matters today. We start with the election of 1800. Past, Present, Future is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. To subscribe at a special rate, just go to lrb.me ppf. That's lrb.me slash ppf. This election year in America, 2024, is in many ways unprecedented. I'm recording this just after Donald Trump has won the South Carolina primary. It looks like he is going to be the Republican nominee. It looks like Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic Party's nominee. It feels inevitable, and yet, in many ways, it feels impossible. Both parties seem like they're going to be picking candidates, who also both seem fatally flawed. So many things about the 2024 election feel like they've never happened before, the age of the candidates, the weirdness of some of the politics. And yet, a lot of it has happened before, not maybe exactly in this form. But American presidential politics is often pretty weird. And many American presidential elections have been fractious and partisan and profoundly significant in just the ways that 2024 promises to be. This series is about eight elections. We're going to be putting these episodes out twice a week. I'm talking to the eminent American historian Gary Gerstel, and we're going to be trying to find the links between elections that happened a long time ago and what's happening today. We're going to be talking about arguments about the nature of democracy, about America's institutions, the endless fights in American politics about race and economics and inequality, about the news, about the truth, about what counts as a fact. Many themes that feel very now turn out to have a long, deep, and fractious history in American political life. We're starting today with the election of 1800. Not the first American presidential election, but the first truly competitive American presidential election. Vicious, scurrilous, partisan, strange, and very, very significant. Gary, to start with a, a big question, not just about the 1800 election, but I think about all American presidential elections. They have this double character including in the eyes of the world. So they are these amazing democratic events. And the election of 1800, the most remarkable thing about it, and this would have struck people at the time, is that the head of state, so not just some prime minister or functionary, the, the king, the equivalent of the king, the commander in chief, 
the guy in charge of the armed forces, is voted out of office. So John Adams, the sitting president, is kicked out, which is the essence of democracy. You know, on some definitions of democracy, that's what democracy means, the ability to kick out the people who control the army. So it's this extraordinary democratic event. And yet, like many American presidential elections, I would say right up until the present, there are so many barriers in the way of democracy that have been put there by the founders, but also by other forces as well. So almost no one votes in this election. It's a tiny franchise. I think roughly 75,000 people in a country which had a population of 5 million. And in some states, you could vote for your delegates to the Electoral College, and we'll come on to the complexities of that. In others, you couldn't. The legislature decided it was a caucus election. There's the Electoral College itself. And then in this election, even that wasn't enough. And it had to be thrown back to the House of Representatives, which was made up of people who hadn't been elected in this election. I mean, it's just barrier after barrier after barrier. And in the eyes of the world, American presidential elections are the symbol of democracy. And in 2024, this is the great year for elections around the world. But there's only one election people are really talking about globally, and that's the American presidential election. And yet they're also, by many standards, not particularly democratic events because of the barriers in the way of the people expressing their will. So when we look at this one, the one we're starting with, 1800, do you see this as a democratic, small d, democratic election? Is it a democratic event? It is a democratic event for the reasons you suggested. Uh, a head of state is tossed out of office by people voting uh, and, a, and a franchise. And in the context of an 18th century world turning into the 19th century, there are no other states behaving in this manner. And so it is a very momentous event, and it is a signal of a different kind of way of doing politics arriving on the world stage. I think a lot of other countries understood that this was the case. But it's also true that uh, Americans are really nervous about making this work. A head of state in America had not been turned out of office before. They don't know quite how to do it. The rules governing the election derived from the Constitution are not particularly clear. The terms of the election to the presidency were some of the last issues that the Constitutional Convention turned to in, in the late 1780s. They were tired. They had worked out the big compromises. They weren't particularly worried about this. So the, the instructions, the guidelines are not very clear. And complicating it further is that much of the decision about electoral machinery was left up to the states. And the states develop different kinds of laws, different approaches, different ways of choosing electors. So there is tremendous amount of confusion, magnified by the fact that this new country is insecure and is not sure that it will survive because of both external and internal threats. The election of 1800 comes on the heels of a bitter dispute between the two proto-parties in America, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, with one, one party affiliated with Britain and the other party affiliated with France. And there have been draconian restrictions on free speech in the United States in the late 1790s. Plus, there are internal concerns about settlers in the western part of the states not accepting federal authority. And so this election is occurring in a new nation that has an understanding that it has a new system of government, but is uncertain about whether this government is going to survive and whether 
if it doesn't survive, whether the country can survive. And this increases the momentousness of the occasion. An acute sense of insecurity attends this election and the people participating in it. So we're going to come on to the difference between these two parties, like you say, proto-parties. This election also initiates the party system in the United States. And though the parties have changed over time, for all the reasons that we will eventually get to, a two-party system becomes the norm after this. Like a lot of people, some of my knowledge of this election comes from Hamilton the Musical. And I think a lot of people who've seen it will remember that there is a scene where the king, King George, sings a song where he's told that Washington is stepping down and he thought that Washington was a king. You know, like, so first of all, well, he can't, he can't step down. And then he said, well, no, he is going to step down. And the first two elections, just to be clear to people, the Washington elections were completely uncontested, right? They were sort of North Korean style elections. I think the result was 100% in both cases. Coronations. Coronations, let's call them that, rather than North Korean elections. Then Washington steps down and Adams is the the representative of, it's not quite a party system yet, but of the incumbents. And Adams defeats Jefferson in 1796 in a fairly closely contested election. But nonetheless, he wins the popular vote. He wins more states. He wins the Electoral College. In Hamilton, the musical, King George says, well, what comes after Washington? And he's told, John Adams. And he's like, good luck with that. But then in Hamilton, you actually get a song called The Election of 1800. It is one of the set pieces in the musical. It has a number of themes that we'll come to, and it's a really interesting piece of work. One of the things that it says about this election, which I think it is known for, is the beginning of modern campaigning. So it's not just this is the first time that a potential king, not an actual king, gets thrown out of office, but it's also the beginning of elections as requiring campaigns. So there's a lot of mudslinging, a lot of scurrilousness in the press, accusations, stories about Jefferson, about Burr, and about the others. But also, as uh, we discover in Hamilton the Musical, the beginnings of actually asking people for their votes. I'm just going to read you a bit. This, this is a little exchange. So in the, the scene in question, Hamilton and Burr are talking to each other. And Burr says, I'm going door to door. Hamilton says, you're openly campaigning? Burr, sure. Hamilton, that's new. Burr, honestly, it's kind of draining. Going door to door, this was also in that sense, a democratic election, because there was a thought that you couldn't just let it be known that if people wanted to vote for you, they could vote for you. You had to ask them for their votes. But that was a New York thing. My understanding is that New York was a bit of an outlier here. In most of the states, it was still the case that you didn't put it to the people. The pre-elected legislature decided in a kind of caucus setting who would be sent to the Electoral College. But what Burr was doing in New York, it was new. My understanding is that right? This was the beginning of the thought that an election required this thing called a campaign. Yes. Uh, parties were not legitimate. There was not a, they were not called political parties then. They were called factions. Factions were bad because they lent themselves to intrigue. And the, the attitude across the 1790s is that principles for offices should not be campaigning, especially for the presidency of the United States. But the 1790s are such a period of divisiveness between the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans, and we'll get into their differences later. That a press is built up and, and accusations are flung. 
And there is a robust practice of democratic politics emerging at the grassroots among newspaper editors, salons, pubs. But it, this is kept at a distance by the presidential candidates themselves. So Jefferson, for example, is not actively campaigning. It's thought to be the wrong thing to do. And the iconoclast in this situation, as is so often the case, is, is Aaron Burr, who is a an enigma of, uh, of the founding fathers, a, a brilliant man in all kinds of ways, but forever breaking rules and not accepting conventions. And in one of the hothouses of democratic discussion enthusiasm, which is New York City, already oriented to the world, becoming a cosmopolitan place, uh, lots of different people, lots of different points of view, lots of gathering places, kinetic energy flowing. He makes a decision to begin campaigning himself, even though he is a candidate for the presidency of the United States. And this, uh, on the one hand, breaks conventions for this new nation. On the other hand, to have a person of his stature beginning to go door to door asking people for their votes signals a new style of campaigning and the suggestion that in this new republic in which the people are going to be sovereign, one must go to the people and ask them for their vote, which breaks from an earlier attitude, which is that the chief candidates would be deferred to, uh, the people would be told who to vote for, Jefferson would have surrogates, Adams would have surrogates who would do some of the organizing, but they would stand apart and above the fray. And Burr is the first one to break with that pattern. He's often accused of doing it for instrumental reasons, um, wanting to get ahead himself and put himself in a better place and better favor. But even someone who acts instrumentally for his own self-interest can have the ability to innovate in interesting ways. And so he does this. He generates a lot of opposition to what he's doing, but it turns out his work in New York is crucial to Jefferson's chances and his own chances and the ultimate outcome of making one of them the new president of the United States, facilitating this transfer of power. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And it, it also illustrates that classic tension, I think, in democracy, which is when it's small, small scale, so a lot of people are excluded from the vote. In one way, that makes it less democratic. You know, we're just talking about propertied men. But if it's small enough, you can do it face to face. So when they say door to door, they mean door to door, right? You can actually, the candidate, which is not going to be true as we move through the history of the republic to mass communication, the candidate can 
meet the people face to face. And he's able to do it in New York on that scale because the scale is still really tiny relative to what's to come. It's a democratic event in that sense. It's also, in that sense, a very narrowly restricted elite event. And Hamilton the Musical is about this. It's about the relationships between a small group of men and these, in this case, four of the founders. So we've got four people that we need to sort of separate out and then work out what is the relationship here. And my God, it gets complicated, right? Because the electoral machinery means that the actual outcome of this election is profoundly confusing. You've got Adams, the incumbent, who is going to lose. And probably the outcome was closer than maybe Hamilton the musical would suggest. But nonetheless, the implication is he's blown it. You've got Hamilton himself, who is not a candidate, but seems to be a kind of kingmaker. You've got Jefferson and Burr, who are the representatives of this new party, the Democratic Republicans. Hamilton is a federalist of a kind, and Adams is the representative of the federalists. So we've got these two parties and we've got these four men. First of all, let's do it through the parties before we get on to the people. As you said, a lot of this is actually a proxy contest for arguments about America's place in the world, and particularly the relationship between the United States and, on the one hand, Britain, and on the other hand, revolutionary France. So this is 1800. France is a decade and a bit out from its revolution, which has gone very differently from the American Revolution. Bloodshed, violence, European-wide war, Napoleon is on the rise. Britain represents the nation that America, the United States, was breaking free from, but some people didn't want to break too far away and certainly didn't want to get into the same place as revolutionary France. How would you characterize the central difference between the two, these emerging parties, these new parties? So the Federalists are the establishment, in a sense. But Jefferson's also the establishment because he was vice president. The Democratic Republicans are what? They're the pro-French party. They are the Southern party. But then Burr, who's one of them, is from New York. It's really confusing. How do you separate them out? The Federalists are a northern-based party, particularly strong in New England, coming out of Massachusetts and the other New England states. They imagine a future where they are closely affiliated with Great Britain. Hamilton is a kingmaker, not just for, imagines himself a kingmaker, not just for elections, but for providing the architecture of what this new republic is going to look like. And he imagines a republic that looks quite a lot like Great Britain with the president surrounded by ceremonial courtiers, a strong central government with the president at the top, a central bank modeled on the Bank of England, uh, capable of raising large amounts of money, using that money to, to go into debt as a way of tying the financial elites to the government, the object of that being economic development, urban areas. Uh, they can't quite imagine industrial development as a phrase yet, but certainly they're interested in manufacturers. Making uh, America a center for the latest in industry, imagining an America in which cities are going to continue to grow and become very robust. And at the top of this is an elite that is uh, imagined as a offshoot of not aristocracy in Britain, but of a gentry class and close ties between 
financial elites, political elites, directing the economic affairs of, of the country, and also having a bank and with the capacity to raise money also creates the possibility of having a standing army modeled on the British example, uh, which will be a very important instrument with which Americans can defend themselves against both external and internal foes. That is the Federalist vision. And just to say, could you characterize that as a very anachronistic term, but it's a kind of security state apart from anything else. There is a lot of securitization going on here because one of the great controversies was the Alien and Sedition Act, the extent to which the central state, the federal government could identify enemies and use force against them. We're talking about a, the possibility of a standing army. We're talking about locking in the elites through the instrument of debt in the same way that the House of Commons in Britain was tied to the established regime by being creditors of national debt. You know, they, there was a sort of mutual relationship of who owed who what, which meant it was in no one's interest to tear this whole thing down. It's a kind of national security state, a proto-national security state, or is that going too far? It is a proto-national security state. We have to your term anachronistic is is well chosen because we have to be careful about applying modern terms to 18th century developments. And it's the security issue I want to stress is not just external, but it's 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 internal. Many Americans on the frontier not accepting the central authority of the government, indigenous peoples not accepting the authority of this new republic. There is warfare going on around the edges and sometimes not around the edges, uh, in, not far from where population centers are. And so security, securing this republic, its safety is a paramount concern. And of course, it's going to be a paramount concern, especially for those in power who face these threats on a daily basis and have to make decisions about which army to send where. where. These are decisions being made in the 1790s. But it's not just a security state. To use another anachronistic term, it's an economic development state. Uh, it wants to use the power of the central state to make uh, the United States uh, a serious economic rival to Great Britain. And in the 1790s, this seems like foolishness, given the way the Industrial Revolution is advancing in, in Britain. But here's where Hamilton's ambition was, was bold and deserves some respect, that he understood that if the right decisions were made about using a state to promote economic development, America could become that kind of rival. So they had a vision, not just of military security, but economic security. And to achieve that kind of economic security, you had to be able to develop the economy. And for that, you needed a strong central state to provide that kind of assistance. And to use another contemporary term, it was also a paranoid state in the sense that part of this was keeping out French revolutionary ideas. And that's the the accusation that was thrown at Jefferson, not so much Burr, I think, but at Jefferson, that Jefferson at heart was that kind of revolutionary. Jefferson was much more comfortable with the possibility of internal bloodshed, civil dissension, but also that he was a radical. Now, seen from Jefferson's point of view, these accusations were, broadly speaking, unfair. But how then did the Democratic Republicans position themselves against this? So this, this Hamiltonian Adams regime, it was oppressive, they would say. It was 
far, far too ready to use the force of the central government, both against individual citizens and against the rights of states. So the Democratic Republican side were at least ostensibly more on the sides of the states, particularly the southern states, than the central government. Were they rural versus industrial as well? Because Burr, is gonna, it's going to be hard to place him in this as the New York guy. So maybe he's just, we'll have to leave him to the side until we get back to him. Rural against centralized authority, pushing back against the securitization. Does that do justice to them or is that a caricature? Uh, yes, but I want to start with a few words about the relationship of France to America, uh, which is robust and of, of long, long standing. The starting point for this is not the French Revolution, but the fact that France was an ally of the revolutionaries in the 1780s, indeed a crucial ally. And monarchical France. Monarchical France. And without the intervention of the French against the British in the crucial battle of Yorktown, which decided the war in which the French Navy established a blockade and prevented British supplies from getting to their beleaguered troops. Without that, I wouldn't say America would have lost, but the the fight might have gone on for a much longer time. And the Battle of Yorktown is another song in Hamilton, and it is the World Turned Upside Down song. That's the drink. That's the Battle of Yorktown drinking song. It's much more French Revolution than it is, you know, whatever proto-British state we're, we're talking about. Yes, yes. And France is seen as the old world power coming to the rescue of this wannabe new republic. And there are other ties that developed too. The, the French advisors are crucial for laying siege to Yorktown and the British forces there, because if the British were the, the great innovators at sea, one can argue that the French were the great innovators militarily on land. And so the advisors to the Americans are often French military figures. And this, this carries through right through the establishment of West Point, the U.S. Military Academy in the early 19th century, where a lot of cadets at West Point are reading French treatises about how to fight war. So th there's a robust relationship there. And all of this is rooted in events that occur before the French Revolution itself. And then the French Revolution happens. And Jefferson and his allies regard France now as a sister republic. They're looking for allies in the world against a world organized still on monarchical lines. And, and Jefferson is in France, after all. He's in France, and he and he has he has good relations there, and, and they're very enthusiastic about it. And they embrace, Jefferson embraces the French Revolution during its, its more hopeful phases. Uh, and another key figure uniting the two revolutions, of course, is Tom Paine, one of the great pamphleteers of the American Revolution who uh, then finds himself in the midst of the French Revolution and writes, you know, the rights of man. And so there are, there is a revolutionary brotherhood and sisterhood going on here, which is very powerful and very strong. And, and Jefferson, who knows France extremely well, is a key figure in this. And he imparts it to what is becoming his proto-party, the Democratic Republicans. Uh, so the affinity for France is quite natural and the attachment occurs and sets down roots before the terror in France, before it becomes clear that the French Revolution has gone, gone desperately awry. And even as Democratic Republicans are beginning to reevaluate the relationship to France in the 1790s, they regard the crackdown with the Alien, Alien and Sedition Acts to be utterly unacceptable in a republic committed where the First Amendment is 
committed to free speech. And the Alien and Sedition Acts that the Federalists pass are the most, arguably the most draconian restrictions on free speech in America until World War I. I mean, this is a very, very serious infringement on the right to speak freely. And so this becomes a huge issue that differentiates parties. And Jefferson imagines a future of close relationship with France, and the Federalists imagine a close relationship with Britain, just as the Napoleonic Wars are breaking out, forcing everyone to choose sides, right? You can't be neutral in this. And so this becomes a huge internal issue in the United States. At the same time, as you suggested in your comment, the Democratic Republicans have a very different vision of political economy for the United States. The heartbeat of America is not the cities. It's not manufacturers. It's not the stratification and the emergence of a working class, an impoverished working class that this is going to bring with it. It is an agrarian vision of America being composed of independent producers, uh, mostly on farms, but artisanal workshops are included in this. They own their own means of production, a very broad-based system of production in which the true citizens of America are masters of their own economic destiny because they are economically independent and dependent on no one for a wage or, or no one for a salary. And out of this economic independence, of, of course, reverting to classical theory, going back to Rome, is Republican virtue, that you can't have political virtue unless you have an economic base where you are not going to be dependent on some group of elite figures. Particularly because of debt, right? So you are emancipated from debt. You do, of course, have to be male and white. Is it the vision of the South? So Jefferson is from Virginia. There is a clear North-South divide. If you look at the electoral map of this election, it's just in, in similar ways to many electoral maps across the history of presidential elections. And you color code it. North goes one way, South goes another way. Are the Democratic Republicans the party of the South? And if they are, what's Burr doing running as their other figurehead? They are a party of the South. And also Jefferson slides over the slavery issue when he's imagining a... So what do you mean by slides over? Well, it's... it's you can't avoid it, can you? Could he avoid it? Well, he, he and rhetorically, when he's talking about a, a nation of independent households... Yeoman farmers, yeah, he has. Um, he's imagining a population that is exclusively white. Uh, he is imagining a intensely patriarchal system of household formation where men are the independent figures and have complete control over their families, their wives and children. This is the vision, and this is what he goes to sell his political message about, uh, because he he can't go to the people and say we are first and foremost a slave society. We have a vision of America in which the common white people of America are all going to have a sacred place. And this, he believes, and with justification, is a message for the North as well as the South, because as much as Hamilton and the Federalists want to create a more urban, economically developed society, even in the North, this is an overwhelmingly agrarian society. And there are farmers in the North who are actually on the whole, doing much better than the independent farmers of the South. And he understands that this is a potential constituency for them. And so he develops a vision of a 
republic extending from sea to sea, which is one reason why he's, when he becomes president, he becomes intent on getting the Buying Louisiana, Lu Louisiana um, from, from which France. Which means a lot more than Louisiana. A lot more than Louisiana. And uh, it's an enormous stretch of land. And, and he imagines that this land is going to be populated by independent yeoman farmers, white, male, heads of households. They're going to drive settlement across the continent. They are going to be economically independent. They are going to have political virtue. They're going to secure liberty for all time. This is his vision of empire of liberty. And in this vision, he does not advertise slavery, even as he is himself a slave owner and deeply committed to a future for slavery in the South and beyond. As his party gets drawn into democratic politics, this becomes his message initially. And he knows he has to attract some Northern votes in order to be successful. And this is where Burr becomes so important to him. Uh, Burr was regarded by both Federalists and Jefferson's own party as a man without principles, but a brilliant man who could be successful in all sorts of ventures. And if he was offered the right inducements, he could be instrumental in allowing this Southern-based party to reach into the North and begin to pick up the votes it would need in the North in order to capture the presidency. So Burr is seen as a crucial instrument of a Southern party, understanding that if it's to be successful in national politics, it has to pick up some Northern support. And Jefferson imagines Burr as the ideal instrument of this project. I'm just going to do another line, a very succinct summary of what you just said from Hamilton the Musical, which is, when it's all said and done, Jefferson has beliefs, Burr has none. And yet they were on the same side. Not only were they on the same side, and this is where we're going to have to get into the mechanics of this, and you're going to have to guide me through this, because I still can't understand how this election played out. Burr and Jefferson ran together. Jefferson was nominally the presidential candidate and Burr the vice presidential candidate. But nothing had been formalized around these kinds of relationships yet. These parties were emerging, but there was an understanding, at least, that they were running together. And together, they won. They both won the popular vote, but they also won in the Electoral College in the sense that they defeated their rival party, the Federalists, Adams did okay, and he did win those northern states, but he didn't win enough and he didn't win any southern states. But what happens in the Electoral College is that Burr and Jefferson get the same number of votes for president. So there is a tie in the Electoral College. And as a result of there being a tie in the Electoral College, according to the rules of the Constitution, the choice of president gets thrown back to the House. And that body still is made up, it's a lame duck legislature, made up of federalists, predominantly federalists, who had been elected two years earlier. First question, how did Jefferson and Burr end up with the same number of votes for president if it was understood that Jefferson was the presidential candidate and Burr was sort of the vice presidential candidate? And the rules, as I understood it at that time, were simply the president is the person who gets the most votes in the Electoral College, and whoever comes second becomes vice president. So Adams had been president. Jefferson, who came second, was his vice president. Where, how did this tie happen? The flaw lies in the Constitution and the rules it set down for electing the president, as 
I said earlier in our conversation, by the time the framers of the Constitution got to the presidential election, they were tired. And hot. And hot. People always say how hot they were. Philadelphia, they wanted to go home and they failed to lay down. They didn't think through all the possibilities of the system they put in place. The system they put in place said that there will be electors uh, from each state equivalent to the total number of representatives in Congress and senators. And that was based on the notorious three-fifths rule for slaves, black Americans, so that the South, which was outnumbered population-wise, would nonetheless have a roughly equivalent representation to northern states. I mean, that's a key part of this, isn't it? Because Jefferson, indeed the Virginians, there were going to be a whole series of Virginian presidents, had built into the Constitution this demographic advantage that the people they had enslaved nonetheless showed up on their side of the ledger for both Congress and also the Electoral College. One of the reasons they were so tired is they spent months debating what became the three-fifths compromise. The question was, uh, for electoral purposes for the House of Representatives, you got one representative for every 30,000 people. Would the enslaved people be counted as people who could then be represented by the South? And the North said, no, if these people are enslaved and you're not going to allow them to vote, they shouldn't be counted. And the Southerners said, of course, they must be counted. Or else there'll be more of you than there will be of us. And so they settled on the three-fifths compromise where each enslaved person was to count as three-fifths of a person. And the South was, I mean, it's a sordid, sordid compromise. And this is the sordid compromise of the Constitution for which America, for a long time, and arguably still, is paying a dear price. But it definitely gave the South more representatives in Congress than they otherwise would have had. Um, and by one person's calculation, Adams would have won easily in 1800 if that three-fifths clause had not been operative. So this definitely gave the South an advantage, and it gave them either a parity or a slight advantage uh, in the Electoral College and uh, allowed their candidates, the candidates in the South, like Jefferson, an advantage in national elections that they otherwise would not have had. Because they spent so much time on this and a few other matters of equal controversy, they had little energy left for the designing the election itself. And the, and the Constitution says simply that each state delegation is to vote, cast two votes for president. And it did not specify that one vote would be for a president and one would be for a vice president. And just to be clear, this is in the Electoral College. This is in the Electoral College. The notorious Electoral College, which we will definitely come back to as well. This is the Electoral College. And this is the body that is authorized by the Constitution to elect the president. And what relationship that Electoral College has to the people who are voting is also left completely unclear in the Constitution. So in some states, um, the people are actually voting for electors. And in other states, they're not voting for electors at all. The electors are being elected by the state legislatures and sent to Congress on that basis. So f for quite a lot of states, there's, there's no popular vote for the electors. This is already being filtered through various kinds of political elites. What they did not imagine is, is what happened in 1800, that there could be a tie. Uh, that if every state voted for two, if they were voting a kind of on a party platform, they might give 
their their two preferred candidates their two votes. There was an understanding informally that the two candidates would have an understanding with each other about who would be the presidential candidate and who would be the vice presidential candidate. But there was no procedure for figuring out if the vice presidential candidate objected to his vice presidential designation, what could be done in that instance, what procedure would be followed. There's just no nothing in the Constitution to guide the Electoral College or Congress on this matter. And presumably they also divided the votes evenly between Jefferson and Burr to ensure that they both came top because the other risk would be that Adams would come second, right? If they all said, right, we want Jefferson to be president, so let's go all in for Jefferson, then the vice president becomes Adams and not Burr because Adams will get his northern share and Burr will be squeezed. If you want your party really to have power, you want to keep Adams out of the vice presidency and you want to have a second in command who shares what is the equivalent of a party platform. There you, was You hope in the case of Burr, not knowing yes, what he actually yes, believed. There were was an informal understanding between Jefferson and Burr that Jefferson was in fact the presidential candidate and that Burr was in fact the vice presidential candidate. And there was still a politics of deference operating with this within this elite. Uh, and the politics of deference dictated that Jefferson was the more august figure in the in the republic, and Burr should just simply defer to him. But this is where Burr's reputation as a rule breaker, as a convention breaker, it's unfair to just accuse him of just gross self-interest, although there was plenty of that. He had had his own career in politics and felt that he had been unfairly injured and been made to be the fall guy in, in various other electoral controversies. And so he was adamant in his own way that if he saw an opportunity perhaps to vault himself into the presidency, this was the moment to take advantage of it. And so he and Jefferson get the same number of votes, 73 for Aaron Burr, 73 for Thomas Jefferson, 65 for John Adams. Uh, and so what is Congress to do? The The Constitution dictates that every state will cast one vote. And as they cast their votes, there are 16 states at this time. There are 16 votes to be cast in the House of Representatives. The winner needs nine votes. On the first ballot, eight states go for Jefferson and six for Burr. And just to be clear before we talk about how they get out of this impasse, the House was made up predominantly at this point of Federalists. So if by some twist of fate, Adams had got into the final two, the House would have chosen Adams as their president. I mean, this is part of the dilemma here, isn't it? They had to keep Adams out of that. That was the other risk. Say there had been a tie between Jefferson and Adams. Adams was the preferred candidate of the House. So the House is choosing between, according to its majority, two candidates, neither of whom it wants. Yes. And Jefferson makes his alliance with Burr, who he regards as an unscrupulous character, for two reasons. One, he feels he can bring New York into his party's column. And the other is to is to make sure they keep Adams out of the running. So yes, Adams has an opportunity to be elected. And this alliance between Burr and Jefferson is crucial to keeping the Federalists from winning again in 1800. So it goes to the House and the House, there needs to be a majority in the House for one of them to win. And I believe that 8-6 split. They, they vote again and again and again and again, 35 times. 
and 35 times Jefferson falls short of the majority he needs. And then on the 36th ballot, two votes flip and Jefferson gets the 10 he needs. According to Hamilton, the musical, <laughs> Hamilton was instrumental in this, in that Hamilton, he distrusted both of these people. He distrusted Jefferson because he didn't like his principles, distrusted Burr because he had none. Both were dangerous men in the eyes of the Federalists, dangerous for different reasons. Hamilton the Musical suggests that given that choice, and again, I'm just going to quote from it, Jefferson or Burr, we know it's lose-lose. Jefferson or Burr, but if you had to choose, is the refrain thrown at Hamilton. And he says, if I had to choose, I'd choose Jefferson. Is that true? Yes. With a but. Not that he doesn't not choose Jefferson, but he's not quite the kingmaker that Lin-Manuel Miranda would have us believe. That the play Hamilton imagines him to have been. He's a, he's a wannabe kingmaker. He has had enormous influence over the structure and establishment of American government in the 1790s, but he's also gotten caught in various compromising positions, both political and personal. And so he, he did not have the uh, power and authority to command the stage and orchestrate this outcome to his, to his liking. Nevertheless, he worked very hard for this particular outcome and was one of the important figures who persuaded, he, he had to persuade a couple Federalists to abstain from voting to, so as to throw the election to Jefferson. And so he is part of a group of people who are working very hard to put into office a candidate who until that moment they have despised and distrusted that being Jefferson. Uh, and here the play gets it right. They, Hamilton and the others do discern a set of political principles in Jefferson that they do not discern in Burr. And they believe that given Jefferson's august standing, his long record of service, the many good things he had done for the American Republic, you know, he has quite a record to his name, Jefferson does, that he is the better choice and that the future of the Republic will lie more securely in his in his hands. And the calculation that Hamilton and the other Federalists who swip, who flip are making is that uh, Jefferson in power will behave responsibly, moderate some of his positions, uh, and rather than throw out everything that the Federalists had done, find points of compromise so that certain elements of the federal Federalist project will be preserved, even as Jefferson puts the government of the United States on a different path. The biggest difference being reigning in the power of Washington and the executive and returning a lot more power to individual states. So I want to ask you a last question, which is really two questions. It's a sort of hypothetical question and a counterfactual question. Is this election evidence of an unspoken or maybe even a spoken understanding that if you're going to hold this new country together... The real risk is that North and South break apart for various reasons, slavery being one, but an economic understanding of how this country should work being another, the rights of the states being another. This is a country, it's not a huge country by this point, but it's geographically spread and there's a big difference between its different parts. You've got a better chance of holding the country together if you have someone from the South as president, in the sense that if the choice is Jefferson and Burr, 
Burr from New York, unscrupulous Burr, maybe more malleable. I mean, maybe because he has no principles, he would be more likely to bend with the wind. But he is from the north, and and this new party suggests deep tensions potentially in the future of this republic. After Jefferson, you're going to get a succession of Virginians. Now, partly because it's been set up through the three-fifths compromise to give them an, an advantage. But there is also at least potentially a thought, and this is going to run through the conversations that we're going to have, that to hold this thing together, were Burr to have become president, the incentives for the southern wing of the Democratic Republicans to stay in would have been gravely reduced. You have Jefferson as president, and you've you've got one of those people at the heart of this new republic. And that that logic holds for the next 20 plus years. That's my hypothetical question. The counterfactual is, say, by some fluke or electoral chicanery, or Hamilton had a change of heart and decided he'd rather have the person with no principles than the person with opposing principles. Say, for whatever reason, the third president of the United States had been Aaron Burr. How different would the history of the country have been? Oh, my God. It's... And you've got to do those two quickly. It's just, it's just, it's, it's very hard to say uh, how how the country would have been different. Burr was a brilliant man who who gave very little indication of his vision of what America ought to look like. Um, he he was as talented as Hamilton and Jefferson and Madison, but left very few writings on the political configuration of the U.S. Very little vision of what this republic would look like. Had built his reputation on being willing his willingness to strike deals in ways that would promote him and his own personal circumstances and situations. Now, someone who is climbing a greasy pole, there are examples of this in history, get to the top and suddenly have a set of principles and a, and a vision that was not earlier, earlier discerned in them. Was Burr capable of developing in this way? The fact that he was willing to deal with both parties suggests an ability to draw from the South and from the North and to cut deals. He may have been a, a figure that was quite successful in uniting North and South precisely because he was committed in principle neither to the Hamiltonian nor the Jeffersonian program. And that might have led to an interesting set of developments. Or it might have led the Hamiltonians and the Jeffersonians to see the gap between them as too wide. I mean, there is also the risk that the compromiser actually exacerbates the difference of the two sides. Yes. And there's also the risk in here to return to a theme that we dealt with in the beginning of our of this episode, the, the danger that he makes a deal uh, with a foreign power that undermines the security of the US, uh, or that he engages in what were called irresponsible filibusters. Uh, going to Mexico or or Cuba or some other place in the new world where he imagines not just increasing the territory of the US, but creating a little fiefdom and republic for himself that he can retire to after the presidency because he was seriously engaged in a in a filibustering move of this sort into Mexico, we can't exclude the possibility that he would have engaged in a similar kind of escapade had he been had he been president. So it's not just that the the North and the South might have pulled apart and he may have exacerbated differences. He may, he may also have made 
the United States more vulnerable to foreign subversion. And here we return to the theme of the fragility of this young republic and the uncertainty about how big a territory it would be, how whether it would vanquish all its external and internal enemies, whether this experiment in republicanism, small r republicanism, that would be a shining light to the world in terms of the spread of liberty, whether it would work or whether it would collapse as most republics had in the past into tyranny. I think I'm inclined to think that Burr would have increased the risks to the future of the American Republic rather than charting a course that might have avoided some of the divisions between North and South that became so prominent and urgent 20, 30, 40 years later. And to that question as to whether, for this period at least, holding it together required having the candidate who was, in some ways, not in all ways, but in some ways, most suspicious of the power of federal government at the head of the federal government. It's a classic political tactic, right? If you want to hold the thing together, you give the power to the person who potentially would pose the biggest threat to it. Jefferson on the outside, believing the things that he believes, standing up for the not just the principles, but the bits of the geography of the United States for which he stood up, is more dangerous on the outside than on the inside. And it's not just that with power came a sense of compromise and responsibility and all the rest of it, and also a vision. You know, he then had projects, the Louisiana Purchase being one. You get very invested, if you're president, in the things you can do as president. It also helps the survival, the early survival of the republic to have at the head of the state, to have as your not king, but not that far removed from a king, the person who's most suspicious of the kingly pretensions of presidents. This may have been part of Hamilton's calculation and his reason for being willing to take a risk on Jefferson. Precisely this, you put this man so skeptical of centralized government power into power, he's not going to demolish it. He's going to take a true measure of external and internal threats, and he's got to make, he's got a good chance of making the right decisions. So yes, I think Hamilton made that calculation and and um, and he didn't live long enough to, to because he was killed by Burr. I didn't live long enough to uh, evaluate the two Jefferson administrations after he was finished, but he would have recognized in some of the things that Jefferson was doing, some of the policies that he wished to see continuing. The one other element in, in this that is not so much about North-South, uh, but is is national is... Uh, is the expansion of the franchise uh, and uh, another unknown in this. This is still a, this is a republic in which the people are allegedly sovereign, but an infinitesimally small portion of the people are actually voting in elections. Uh, but very quickly, uh, the quite a lot of American people understood as white men take the first words of the Constitution seriously, we the people, and they begin mobilizing to demand and play a much bigger role in politics than they had played in the election of 1800 and before. And this becomes another unpredictable factor in terms of the evolution of American politics. What happens when some portion of the mass really begins to vote? And how does that explain the divisions between North and South and other urgent matters that this young republic is going to have to deal with.
This series is twice a week, so our next episode will be coming out on Sunday. And the next election that we're going to be talking about is the election of 1828, which saw the election as president of Andrew Jackson, very much a man of his times, but also, in some surprising ways, a man of our times too. We also want to let you know about our new newsletter. It's coming out every fortnight. It's free. And to get it, all you have to do is click on the link that you'll find in the show description for this podcast, wherever you get this podcast. We'll also tweet the link and you can find it on the link tree on our Twitter at PPF Ideas. Every fortnight, we're going to be putting out a guide to the episodes that we've been talking about, links to further reading, further watching, further listening. I'm going to be writing in the newsletter too. Just click on the link in the show description or follow us on Twitter at PPF Ideas. It's fortnightly and it's free. And join us for the next episode in this series, The Election of 1828. This has been Past, Present, Future, brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.